This is Our American Stories, and we bring you stories of all kinds, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan. Bob is one of our favorite features on the show, bringing us stories about his own life, love, loss, comedy, tragedy, and success. Today, Bob brings us a tragedy, the death of his father. My father's doctor called to schedule a biopsy of lung tissue that they suspected might be lung cancer. Since his lungs were in such poor condition due to his emphysema, they wanted to use surgery and come in through the back to obtain more tissue to be sure. This news finally penetrated the veneer of his indifference to his health, and I heard the anxiousness in his voice when he called for me to come up to the hotel to talk to him about it. His concern was compounded by the request to do it the very next morning. Sitting on the bed, cigarette between his fingers, he brooded about what was ahead. This was not the news he had anticipated, and he was rattled by it. He preferred a quick death rather than a lingering death from cancer. We went over the entire conversations he'd had with the surgeon to figure out what to do. Silence followed when we finished and we sat there with our own thoughts. Finally, he lifted his big head and turning to me, he said, You know, Bob, I wish you were still drinking so we could go downstairs to the bar and have a few drinks together. I was astonished that he said that. I'd been sober for over a year and I thought he supported my decision. But before I could answer him, he said, No, 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 I take that back. I like you much better when you're sober. We sat in the surgeon's office and he asked if the chief risk with an operation was that he might not recover enough to live independently. Once again, the surgeon nodded affirmatively, and my father said he would not do it. The doctor started to talk about the alternatives, like chemo or radiation, until my dad raised an open hand, No. And I'm not going to do any of that either. The surgeon paused and said he understood, but then asked why. My father leaned forward in his chair towards the doctor and pointing at this massive head of black and silver hair, he said, Do you see all this hair, doctor? I'm taking it all with me when I go. How much time do I have before I won't be able to take care of myself? The surgeon said, Well, Mr. McClellan, if you don't do anything at all, then I'd say six months or so, maybe a year. I'll take the six months, my dad said, and he thanked him for his time, and we left. Eventually, his doctors had to make arrangements for him to report to the convalescent hospital for transit and temporary duty, as my father referred to it. Conversations in here with him were about small talk or last-minute details about his funeral. His funeral instructions were clear. He promised me he'll have me cremated. I'm not a Catholic like your mother, you know, and I don't want any blessings or ceremonies. I also have a free burial, but the only place they can bury me is in the state of Washington, and I don't want to be buried up there. And it's too damn cold. Most importantly, don't waste any money on newspapers or programs. There isn't going to be anyone around who remembers me. These business matters seemed the direction that he wanted the conversation to go. I was disappointed, but I knew this would not be the time to try to mend relationships or old injuries or make apologies. My father would dismiss it, say it won't matter. He'd be dead and all will die with him. Besides, what would be the point? 
but the time to get to learn more about him was waning. I wondered how he could be so matter-of-fact about his dying. I also knew there wouldn't be no deathbed come to Jesus' awakening or a confession of guilt, sentimental display of affection or regrets from my father. He had no burden to unload and wouldn't discuss it with his children if he did. He looked like he was just waiting patiently for his name to be called. He had one more stop to make, and that was the cemetery. His life had come full circle. Once again, like on Guadalcanal, he was alone with no relief in sight. He knew, too, that he would not leave this room alive. This time, however, there'd be no great explosion or the violent perforating impact of bullets hitting his chest or head. Now it would be just a slow and quiet leak. It seemed each shallow breath that left his body would not return, and soon he would be out of life. He had no pain or need of any equipment. He just had to lie there and wait to be called. It was now just a matter of time. He faced what was ahead as if he was waiting for another landing craft to take him to another foreign island. He was calm. He was always calm and always prepared. He had that look that a young Marine needed to see from his platoon sergeant as he climbs down into a landing craft. That look came from his character, well sharpened by Marine Corps training and the weight of responsibility for his men. His mind was always clear and sharp, even when people around him were dying. Sometimes when amused or undistracted, he could make small talk. But in between his words, one says he was having another conversation in his mind. The contrast of his life in this transit station of a hospice to the one he led could not have been more extreme. On the ward, there were no men drinking, recounting stories of battle, or remembering old friends. There were no more brilliantly colored uniforms or music from the division band. There were no ceremonies or parades left to perform. The pageantry which had so marked his life in the Marine Corps was gone. No longer would his ears be assaulted by the sounds of battle or experience the terrifying uncertainty of war. Soon, everything would be still and quiet. Now he lies amidst the colorless sterility, flavorous hygiene, and the detached efficiency of preparing people for the grave. Here, he is now just a man waiting once again to die. The proud symbol he once wore on his uniform of the 1st Marine Division, with the word Guadalcanal and the number, was unimportant now. Now, the chaos of struggle and death would be here within these walls of a building, rather than in a jungle. And we're listening to Bob McClellan's story, well, actually his father's, which is so inextricably bound up with his son's. And by the way, go to the McClellan Files, and there are a whole bunch of stories about both Bob and his father, and about the Marine Corps, and so much more. When we come back, more of the life of Bob McClellan and his father, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories and the McClellan Files and Bob's story of his own father's death. And I, I can't get out of my head the father being asked about chemo and radiation and just waving it off and pointing at his head and all that black hair and saying, I'm taking that with me. And you get to know the man right through that, right? And that's so often the case with character. Certain little details and actions dictate and tell you and reveal who a person is. Let's return to Bob McClellan. The sounds of dementia more than occasionally filled the hall with fear-filled cries for help. Some patients screamed for help over and over, while others sat strapped in wheelchairs calling endlessly for the nurses who, undistracted, quietly continued working. The alarm on the doors would ring constantly as another patient wandered aimlessly outside, senselessly searching for home or a familiar place to return to. The help they sought seldom came as there was little that could be done for them. They had lost contact with the world around them, and their fearful pleas were based on some instinctual knowledge that they were lost and no one was going to come to find them. They were lost. They were lost in their minds as if their world was transformed from the one they knew to the one of fantasy. Fragmented memories or dark nightmares of imagined phantoms appearing quickly and disappearing like flashing lights. They sensed that something was out of order and their vision of chaos magnified their fears. They weren't crying out because of neglect, but rather from the painful unconscious knowledge of not knowing where they were or what was happening to them. Dying can be so ugly. Whether or not they could comprehend where they were, they knew they were helpless and afraid to die. My father was not afraid to die. He was calm and clear, and unlike the people in the ward, he knew what was going on, and that he had very little time left. But every day seemed to be his last, and then he would get a brief recovery. It was a tough waiting period, as the outcome of these reprieves would not be recovery but yet another day to wait for the inevitable. The end became visible when I came to visit him, and as always, brought a pint of vodka for him. This time, however, when I opened the drawer of the bedside table, I saw that the last one I brought him was unopened. It was then that I knew the end was near. The pressure had finally gotten so great it became necessary to take a few days out of town to relax. It was not pressure from the anxiety of watching my father die, but from the exhausting, long process that it took to bring him to this moment. I tried to remember that it was important to give him all I could and take care of his last few days. I was comforted by the fact that when the end finally did arrive, I could walk away knowing that I did all I could for him and return to my life. But with the funeral services coming soon, I expected that I had further to go before peace would come and life would find its equilibrium again. It was going to be a stressful and busy time. Before leaving town, I went and I sat by my father's bed. He laid still in the bed, staring at the ceiling. He spoke sparingly. His six-foot-two-inch body had shed all of the water weight that he had carried for the last few years. His face, though pale, had recovered some of the lean skeletal structure that gave him both a handsome and fearsome look. I wanted to avoid sentiment in the conversation unless my father had something to say, but I really could not let these last moments pass without expressing some feelings. I told him I had to go out of town for a few days and I wanted to talk with him before I left. 
Leaning closer to the bed to avoid raising my voice, I said, Dad, Dad, I just want you to know what a great father you are and how much I love you. I'm going to miss you very much, Dad. I'm going to miss you very much. He continued to stare at the ceiling. His lucid eyes were open and his skeletal face expressionless as he lay still. He made no response. Leaning closer, I said, Dad, Dad, did you hear what I said? He nodded and with a whisper said, yes. Is there anything you want to say to me, I asked. Looking at me, he said, like what? What do you mean, like what? Aren't you going to miss me? Don't you have anything you want to say to me? Now, how the hell am I going to miss you, Bob, if I'm dead? Jesus, is that the best you can do? Don't you want to tell me you love me or that I was a good son or something? Why? You don't know that already? That's not the point. I'd like to hear something from you. Is that what this is all about, Bob? You don't know it already, so you have to come down here right now and try to pull this out of me? What do you think you're watching, a movie? You really want to make me do this? Coming back once more to extract those feelings about me, I asked him, don't you even want to tell me you love me or that I was a good son? I'm ashamed as I remember this moment. In his response, you really don't know that already? Okay, forget it, I said in frustration. And with frustration and disrespect, I stood up and standing at the end of his bed, I said to my father, I'm leaving now. I've got to get out of town. I'll be back in four days. If you're here when I return, I will see you then. If not, then this is goodbye. My father lifted his arm and with a slight wave of his hand, he said, then this is goodbye. I turned and walked out of the room to my car. Two days later, he died. As I walked out to my car that night, I thought about what an SOB he was. How could he be so hard and unemotional? Yet sitting in the car after I left him, I had this nagging feeling deep down he was right. I did know it. I can't remember ever doubting it. But that night I needed some gesture of his feelings for me. I really didn't need to be told again or at any other time in my life that he loved me. He displayed it so many ways through my life, but none of those times comported to the tender scene by the bedside I had imagined. He was just missing the music and the color and the camera close-up that my weakness needed to magnify this scene and my importance. Ironically, I had already received this gift of love. At this time, I set it back because it didn't come in the right wrapping. This last conversation I had with him has stayed with me for many years. This is one of those stories that when I tell over drinks, it always attracted sympathy for me and allowed others to share their disappointments about the absence of parents expressing love while they're dying. The ultimate answer to the question of why am I so unhappy? What's missing in my life? However, these were false feelings looking to isolate his lack of tenderness as an excuse for my need for validation and explain my problems in life. I should have realized that to my father, love meant romance. Telling my listener the story, I would wallow in lamentations of self-pity and try to soothe my hurt feelings for my failings in life. Wrapped tight in my victim's blanket, I became a self-centered invalid, consoling myself for the lack of hope and happiness. I'm ashamed to see myself almost pleading to hear him say something to me 
to make his death about me rather than the father who raised me, supported me, and remained a fixture in my life. Years later, I truly admitted to myself that he was right. I did know, and I really didn't need him to repeatedly tell me. My father's language to communicate his feelings was not in words, but in actions. I knew that as a child, I was simply below his radar screen, but as I grew up, I earned his respect. I would never be his peer, but his respect was how he demonstrated his affections for the people he loved. Most importantly, I learned sitting there afterwards is how self-centered I can be. Here is my father dying in front of me, and all I can think about is him saying tender words about me. And what a story, and Bob McClellan's story. Well, it's a lot of our stories, right? We want people to love us the way we want to be loved. And then we start to resent those people who do love us because it's not the way we'd like it. And any of us who've been sort of ungrateful kids do come to that conclusion at some point in time, blaming your parents who loved you, not perfectly, but their best, is the loser's game because you'll have kids too one day. How the hell am I going to miss you when I'm dead? It's just, you can't beat it. It's just fantastic. And it's beautiful in its own way. My own mom and dad, they were were from a generation that didn't say I love you all the time. And I remember my last few months with my mom having the late shift and bringing her her cigarettes, sneaking them in. And sure, her puffing away and we would listen to Frank Sinatra tapes or her favorite talk show host with little yellow transistor radio piping in from WABC in New York and just holding her hand. I knew she loved me, though. I didn't didn't make a trauma of it. My mom and dad loved me. But some of my siblings and some of my peers, boy, they'd make a trauma of no trauma at all, some of them. Bob McClellan's story, so many of our stories, a beautiful story. By the way, your father and mother's stories, we'd love to hear them. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, but we're asking you, be real. That's all we ask. Be real. That's what we try and do here every day. Tell your own story the way only you can tell it. The McClellan Files can be found at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell a lot of stories about family, lots more about generosity. This next story combines both. Howard Yusuk is the Manhattan Institute's Vice President for Research and Publications and author of the forthcoming book, Who Killed Civil Society? Today, Howard shares with us a personal story, How the Agency Saved My Father. The biggest mystery of my childhood was the question of how my father had survived his. 
Though the details were fuzzy, the facts seemed clear. An auto accident outside Trenton, in which his parents were seriously injured, orphaned not long after in South Philadelphia in the depth of the Depression, later raised in foster homes, and yet, by 18, off by streetcar to engineering school, and after World War II, to life in the middle class. What had made it possible? The most intriguing explanation involved something he called the agency. Once a year, he'd say, the agency took us to get a suit, one pair of long pants, one pair of knickers, or the agency even paid to get my teeth fixed. In a thousand ways, the world of my father's childhood amid the row houses of South Philly, a world where fish were kept alive in the bathtub so they'd stay fresh, where teenagers enjoyed classical music, where sunflower seeds were the junk food of choice, is as gone as any European Jewish shtetl. But to me, the agency was the most distant part of it. My own father, it appeared, had been raised without parents and without the support of public funds under the auspices of a charitable organization. What exactly was the agency? My father provided the crucial clue. Once a month, he recalls, an older woman connected with the agency would arrive in a chauffeur-driven black Cadillac to check on her. He remembered her name, Mrs. Sternberger. I found her traces a few blocks from Independence Hall at the Balch Institute for Ethnic Studies, which houses the records of Philadelphia's myriad Jewish charities. On the founding board of directors of the Juvenile Aid Society, I discovered was a woman named Matilda K. Sternberger. And looking through the Juvenile Aid Society's pile of typed case records, I turned up one from March 2, 1934, proceedings of its placement committee's monthly meeting, which took up the case of Bernard Husick, my father, and his elder sister, Stella. The library will close in 10 minutes. It's a powerful thing to come across such a record only minutes before library closing time. It's sobering to read about one's own family as the object of intervention and help, especially when you're used to identifying with those providing the help, and even more so when such records contain powerful revelations as these did. Turns out my father's parents had not died at the same time as I'd been told. His father had outlived his mother and become a single father responsible for two young children aged five and 10 in the early years of the Depression. I learned that in June 1932, three years before the Social Security Act became law, at a time when state and local governments provided only short-term emergency relief, my grandfather had first turned to private charity for support. His situation was more like that so common today, a single-parent family in search of help, a family for which outsiders were deciding whether help was deserved, and if so, what form that help should take. By the time it considered the case of my father, I learned the Juvenile Aid Society had been making those kind of decisions for more than 20 years. It had grown out of something called the Young Women's Union, which was part of a movement beginning in the 1880s in which, as Philadelphia's Jewish exponent later wrote, the noxious tenements of South Philadelphia were invaded by an unlikely little army of well-bred, carefully nurtured, Jewish young ladies from the safely upper-middle-class environs of Spring Garden Street. 
led by banking heiress Bella Loeb Selig, the women's union began to move from children's recreation and nursery programs to an effort its members called baby snatching or child saving, by which they meant persuading the juvenile court, which they helped found in 1901, to release children in trouble into their custody. To handle these kids, the women's union gave birth to the Juvenile Aid Society, the agency, in 1911. By 1932, it was a big organization, paying for between 350 children to 450 each year to be raised in private foster homes. It was part of a larger system of some 80 private nonprofit and religious organizations which cared for the vast majority of abused, abandoned, or orphaned children in Pennsylvania. Through the Juvenile Aid Society, the wealthy German Jewish women on its board expressed their sense of responsibility for the children of poor Russian immigrants, their generic term for Eastern European Jews. So it was that women named Deutsch and Guckenheimer, members, many of them, of the city's grand Moroccan-style Temple of Reform Judaism, Congregation Rodef Shalom, came to take some responsibility for children named Lazarowitz and Katz, then piling into South Philadelphia and crowding it with what ultimately would be more than 200 small dark synagogues squeezed in among the row houses. These charitable women can be thought of as Jewish Victorians, combining a religious impulse with the Victorian commitment to child saving. They were moved by the Talmudic injunction that the blessed man is the man that brings up an orphan boy or girl until marriage. And fearing that the Russians would abandon Judaism as they acculturated to America, they required all children they assisted to attend religious schools. For them, religion was the guarantor of the bourgeois values and the self-discipline they cherished. Moral behavior, the agency's literature observes, is the result of right habit and daily practice. Cultivate the child's natural desires for leadership, for justice, for independence, for self-respect, for hero worship. Morality is an inner driving force. Religion is an inner light and revelation. These cannot be forced from without. Open the windows of the soul through which the inner splendor may shine. The agency saw itself as a retail helper, so to speak, intervening with individual families, not to change the social system, but to help children find their place in it. Its leaders were willing not just to support foster homes, but to make a personal commitment to visit children themselves and assess foster families, to form personal bonds with those being helped. Their meticulous records note the names of the child and the name of the visitor. Miss Baum visiting Rose Heimowitz, Mrs. Loeb visiting Benjamin Chernikoff, Mrs. Zucker visiting Meyer Balchin. They were a small group taking on a big task. There had been 15,000 Jews in Philadelphia in 1880. By 1920, there were 200,000. The agency's main strategy was child placement, foster care, which it championed as a preferred alternative to orphanages. Children in bad circumstances would be taken in by loving families fairly paid for their efforts. As a 1919 Russell Sage Foundation report put it, child placing in families was the most important development in child welfare work during the last half of the 19th century. In March of 1934, one of the children placed by this movement 
would be my own father. And after the break, we'll hear more of the story, How the Agency Saved My Father, from Howard Yusuk, who has written an entire book about private charity called Who Killed Civil Society. Look for it on Amazon in the coming months. More on Howard's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue with Howard Yusuk's story of how a private Jewish charity known as the Agency saved his father from what might have been a terrible life as an orphan. The Juvenile Aid Society's solution to the inevitable danger of child abuse in private homes rested on the personal efforts of the agency's volunteer home-finding and placement committees. Its home-finding committee rejected twice as many potential replacement homes as it approved. Each board member visited 30 to 40 children each month. The agency readily increased its payment to the foster mother of the mischievous Bass Boys, aged 8 and 13, from $22 to $25 a month. Come on! Cry! <laughs> It granted an increase as well to Jack Ginsburg's foster mother in view of his mental retardation and bedwetting. 23 years after the agency's birth, founding director Matilda Cohn Sternberger first visited Bernard Husick and his elder sister Stella of 2328 South 3rd Street. The heiress to a fortune her mother's family had made selling Civil War uniforms Mrs. Sternberger was by then widowed and had given up the grand mansion on 15th Street where she'd lived with her husband to share an apartment with her sister Dorothy, also widowed, just off Rittenhouse Square. Then as now, it was among Philadelphia's best addresses, boasting a doorman and out front four cast iron hitching posts. She routinely supervised 30 children and sometimes reported more visits than that in a given month. My father's foster care was a result of the death of his mother and the financial decline of his father with the onset of the Depression. His father, Abraham Husid, was a presser in clothing plants on Philadelphia's Hart Street, which housed dozens of small family-owned firms in four- and five-story buildings, Jaffe Brothers, Cantor Brothers, Saul Glazer and Company, and which today houses similar firms employing Asian immigrants. Though he spoke only Yiddish and could not read or write even that, my grandfather was part of Philadelphia's $1 billion a year textile industry, then the largest in any city in the world. When Abraham Kusid first requested a plan in June 1932 
20 months after his wife's death, the agency was sympathetic. It regularly provided widowers with support, even with a housekeeper to hold a household together, and it readily approved his request. But he did not use the money to keep the household together. The record of the meeting of the Juvenile Aid Society of Philadelphia in March of 1934 tells the story of a period in my father's life so bleak that he would never find it easy to discuss. He'd speak of himself in the third person. That was a scared little boy. The agency's records make clear why, referring to his father Abraham. Mr. Husick's third wife had turned them out of the home because he was unemployed and she was unwilling and unable to care for the children. Both children were very unhappy in the home of their stepmother who mistreated them. All three, the 55-year-old father with the 13-year-old daughter and the 8-year-old son, wandered around with the children boarded, presumably with money from the agency, in a series of different homes. At other times, Abraham Husick apparently did not place his children anywhere. It was depression time. He couldn't get a job, my father would recall. I remember the crowds of people. Who wants to work for 25 cents an hour? Who wants to work for 20 cents an hour? Despite it all, my father remembers his father warmly from those times, as a man who told him stories, took him to synagogue, and whom he recalls rolling cigarettes, father and son using the rolling machine together. One of those cigarettes smoldered one evening in Abe Cusick's mattress in the boarding house where he and his children were staying. And when the mattress caught fire, only his sister Stella awoke, leading her father and brother, as in a dream, to the street and saving their lives. That situation came to the attention of the placement committee of the agency, meeting in room 209 of the Jewish Federation building on 9th Street in Philadelphia in March 1934. The report of the proceedings of that day was a harsh indictment of my grandfather. Placement is now being requested, reads the report, because Mr. Husick has proven to be a shiftless, irresponsible person, and it is necessary that a permanent plan be made for the children to give them a measure of security. Even after their placement, Stella and Bernard continued to visit their father. On New Year's Eve 1935, the day he died, Stella found him, unconscious, on the floor of the rooming house in which he was living above a butcher's shop at 4th and Wolf in South Philly. He had complained for a while, my father recalls, of rectal pain. When the 15-year-old girl and her 10-year-old brother worked their way through the bureaucracy and corridors of the Philadelphia General Hospital the next morning, someone would explain to them in Yiddish that he was tot, dead. But the brilliant girl would overhear the doctors and remember 60-plus years later prostate hypertrophy, leading to the inability to urinate with blood poisoning the result. One can only wonder whether, had she and her brother still been living with him, whether they might have saved him. The condition was surgically treatable even then, and whether there would have been no burial on New Year's Day 1936 in a pauper's grave, such was the fate of the shiftless and irresponsible in 1935. As for me, my middle name is Abel in memory of Abe, Whatever his failings, my father did not fail to honor him as Jewish custom would have it. And Abe's death provided a warning for me more than 60 years later because a physician dutifully listed prostate hypertrophy as the cause of his death. I was led to consider whether that swelling could have been owed to prostate cancer and to seek the tests that identified my own cancer at the earliest, most treatable stage. By the time of their father's death, 
the agency had arranged a long-term placement for Bernard and Stella at the home of a barber and his wife, Louis and Miriam Grisport, who owned a corner row house at 3rd and Fitzgerald Streets near the southern edge of South Philly. One factor that made the agency's placement system work was the fact that low-income Philadelphians commonly weren't apartment dwellers but instead lived in and owned their own row homes. They had mortgages to pay and, with the Depression, were willing to rent rooms to a variety of comers, foster children included. In keeping with agency rules, my father and his sister had to have their own rooms, a luxury at the Grisboards, where a married couple with a child boarded together in a single room. My father took advantage of his tiny room to have a desk at which to study, even to set up a chemistry set. In other respects, he and his sister were better off than their street corner peers who were not in the agency's care. The agency provided medical care and psychological testing. My father can recall being much affected by hearing the psychologist who tested him at age 10 remarked, this is a pretty smart kid. The agency sent its wards eggs and milk, beds and bedding, and it paid for two weeks at the Jewish Federation's summer camp. My father's memories include the names of the cabins, each named for a different college, including D for the Drexel Institute of Technology, to which he would eventually take the streetcar from the Grisboards to attend. For her part, Mrs. Sternberger's hope was to lead the children she supervised up the social ladder. My father's strongest memory of Mrs. Sternberger's talks with him in the Grisboards' front parlor was her urging that when he succeeded as an adult, he must always remember his own charitable obligations. She would recite all these other cases that she had had, other people who had been like me, who had now made it and were big contributors. My father did not forget the advice of Mrs. Sternberger, never failing to raise money each year for Jewish charities in his adopted city of Cleveland, where he had indeed become financially successful. Nor did his sister Stella forget the advice of her benefactress either. Continuing even in her late 70s to volunteer, she traveled back to South Philadelphia to teach English to new Asian immigrants, often passing by the scenes of her own childhood along the way. As for the agency itself, it had, by 1942, been merged into a Philadelphia-wide Association for Jewish Children and ultimately became part of the Jewish Children's and Family Service, provider of a great range of assistance to many, including hundreds of children at places now with financial support from a county contract in foster care. But because it does not receive all its funding from government, it continues to chart its own way in developing programs as well. It even continued to receive funds from the estates of some of the board members of my father's era, including, as recently as 1993, $23,000 from the sale of utility stock that had belonged to the estate of Matilda K. Sternberger. The money, Mrs. Sternberger dictated, should go toward the purchase of radios, televisions, books for the blind, or other recreational devices for the infirm elderly. Mrs. Sternberger had anticipated the agency's future emphasis. It would go on to assist some 4,000 Jewish elderly each year and employ 500 volunteers as friendly visitors to them. It no longer uses volunteers to visit the children for whom it cares, and it must not incorporate religion into its approach to those children. A former vice president of the agency, warm and enthusiastic and well-versed in its history, once told me he believes that volunteers wouldn't have that much to offer the black and Hispanic children 
of drug-addicted mothers for whom the agency's paid staff now cares. The cultural barriers, he said, are just too great. Maybe so, but one wonders whether they are any greater than those that separated two orphaned children in South Philadelphia from a woman arriving in her black Cadillac all those many years ago. And thanks to Howard Yusuf and this terrific story about his father. Both of their stories and the story of American generosity here on Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter. Just give us your email. We'll give you our five best stories every week. Again, this is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and this next one, my goodness, it's a great one. Levi's are an American phenomenon, symbolizing the vitality of the West to people all over the world, but just as phenomenal is the story of their creator, the young German immigrant Levi Strauss. Strauss invented the blue jean in 1873, and today his company headquartered in San Francisco, employs over 12,500 people. Over time, Levi's jeans have been associated with miners, workmen, Western cowboys, 1950s greasers, 1960s hippies, and high fashion in the 1980s and straight to today. This is the story of how one man got his American dream stitched into a pair of blue jeans, the fabric of freedom. Here to tell this story is Lynn Downey, Lynn was the first in-house historian for Levi Strauss and Company, where for 25 years she built the company's archive, traveled as its global ambassador, and thoroughly researched the life of its founder. She is the author of the wonderfully readable biography, Levi Strauss, The Man Who Gave Blue Jeans to the World. Here's Lynn. I was hired as the very first historian archivist for Levi Strauss & Co. in 1989. And when I walked in the door, I was not too surprised that there weren't any historical records because of this. This is a picture of the company headquarters April 20th, 1906, um, after the building has survived the massive earthquake, but not the fire. It's not unusual. You go to work for a company in San Francisco that was founded before the earthquake. You're not going to have much. So let's start with his beginning. He was born Loeb Strauss, L-O-Umlaut-B Strauss, February 26, 1829, in the Bavarian town of Butenheim. His father, Hirsch, was a peddler. Um, his grandparents, uh, grandfathers were cattle traders. Peddling, of course, was a traditional Jewish occupation. Levi's mother was actually Hirsch Strauss's second wife. He had five older siblings, half-siblings, and then he and his sister Fanny were the son and daughter of Hirsch's second wife. So he grew up going to the, the tiny little synagogue and tiny little Butenheim and um, going to school, um, but he, he and the entire family and every Jewish citizen of Butenheim was living under something called the Juden Edict. It was a law that had been passed in 1813 that was intended to make you know, proper citizens out of Bavaria's Jews, but really just took away so many rights. And one of the things that was done to do this was every village, after the Juden Edict went into effect, had to have a list called a matrikel, which was the list of every citizen in every town. And it had very specific rules. 
Only those who were listed on the matricale could marry or change their residence within the boundaries of the kingdom. In addition, the right to marry was limited to the eldest son in the family. A younger son could marry only if a childless couple gave up a spot on the matricale for him. If he married a widow, who also was on the list, or if he left his village and married in another, or if a place on the list opened up. Basically, it was about the list. And there was, if you were a younger son, you couldn't marry. There were a lot of unsanctioned unions and illegitimate births in a lot of these very, very small towns in Bavaria. The other bigger problem that the Juden Edic had was it did not allow Jews to carry on their traditional occupations. Peddling cattle trading, two of the biggest occupations for the region. Unless you were sort of grandfathered in and you were too old and you already had that occupation, you had to take up farming or small crafts. You had to be a shoemaker or a soap maker or whatever. So the, the oldest Strauss boy was uh, Jakob. He could marry, he could do whatever he wanted, but he still couldn't be a peddler like his dad. Not to mention the, four, the three other boys in the house, they had no opportunities whatsoever. So in 1837, 18 young people in Butenheim just got up and left. And two of them were the two oldest Strauss children, Jakob, who went to London, and Rosla, um, the oldest sister, went to New York. Three years later, the two other boys went to America. Um, Jonathan, who became Jonas, and Lippmann, who became Louis. They left in 1840 and 1841, went to New York, and soon became very prosperous and were sending letters back home about how good things were in New York. Then, in 1846, Herr Strauss dies of tuberculosis, and his wife Rebecca has a big decision to make. She has her own two children and the young, her, her youngest stepdaughter, and so she makes the important and necessary decision to go to America. Now, if you wanted to leave Bavaria and go to America, you couldn't just get up and leave. You had to apply to the Bavarian government and tell them why you wanted to leave, and you had to make sure you had to tell them why without insulting the Bavarian government at the same time. And thanks to the record keeping in the state archives in Bamberg, we actually have the statement that Levi Strauss himself wrote to explain the reasons why he was leaving along with his mother. It's really very poignant. The favorable news that I have received from my stepbrothers in America has convinced me to follow them, even though I do not have at this time a specific occupation. But my brothers will take care of that. No members of my family will stay behind. I will share the fate that has been assigned to me with them in foreign lands. I thus join my mother in her plea. So it was, you know, I don't, I don't have a career here. Just like my brothers, you know, there's no career here, but I'm going to go to America and I'll have something to do. And this was very important because if you left Bavaria, you had to leave money behind so that if you struck out in America or London and came back home, you were not a burden on the state. So sometime between spring and autumn 1848, Rebecca Strauss and her th three children got on a ship in Bremen and went off for New York. And you can read in the book about the ghastly steerage passage that you had to take to get to New York. And then they were very happy to finally land in New York City. And they moved into an area called Klein Deutschland, which is today basically the Lower East Side of New York. But it was, it was so many, both Christian and Jewish people of, uh, from Germany, it was called Klein Deutschland, Little Germany. So they move in with Louis and uh, Jonas Strauss, 
who were urban peddlers. They had um, store accounts, and they would, they would get stuff wholesale, and they would have their own store accounts, and they'd walk around New York, and they were basically urban peddlers. Um, their business was called Jay Strauss and Brother, Jay for Jonas, the oldest brother. He got to name the business after him. Um, so Levi jumps in and he starts learning the business and he's learning English and then the uh, census taker comes around in 1850 takes the names of everybody in the Strauss household and then there's someone named Levi because he changed his name for a number of reasons the most important of which was nobody in America can pronounce Lube the other reason is Levi is a name from the Bible. It's very common. It's, uh, everybody knows it, Christian and Jew, so it seemed like the appropriate name for him to take for his, basically his business name, although it's very likely, of course, they called him Loeb at home. And you're listening to Lynn Downey telling the story, the great immigrant story of Levi Strauss and having learned why the Strauss family left Bavaria. And my goodness, why would you stay with these kinds of laws and rules? And by the way, we love telling stories like this to give people a cultural and historical context of how people lived back in the day. Let's continue with Lynn Downey, this remarkable storyteller and the story of Levi Strauss. Then the gold rush happens and all these reports are coming back. All the, the, the Jewish, so many Jewish merchants are coming out to San Francisco and Auburn and all of those little gold rush towns. And they're setting up retail stores and they're writing their families back home saying, come out to California. The opportunities here are amazing. And if you wanted to come to California and go into business, you had two opportunities. You could be the wholesaler, you could stay in San Francisco, bring in the goods from New York and have your retail accounts up in the gold rush country. Or you could have your small retail stores up there. It was this amazing sort of umbilical cord between New York, San Francisco, and the gold country. So sometime in 1852, the Strauss family decides to send Levi to California to basically open up the West Coast branch of J. Strauss Brother & Co. But he had something very important to do before he could leave. And on January 31st, 1853, he became an American citizen. He had registered for naturalization almost the minute he got off the boat in 1848 and became a citizen. And five days later, he was on a steamer for the Isthmus of Panama. Now, there were many ways to get to San Francisco. The fastest was to cross the Isthmus of Panama. It was no less dangerous, but it was fast. So what you did was you took a steamer from New York to the um, Caribbean side of the Isthmus. And then in 1853, you could only take a railroad halfway across because it wasn't finished. Then you had to take a boat on the Chagres River. And, they, and then it, depending on what time of year you were there, for him it was February, you stopped at Gorgona. And then you rented a mule from Wells Fargo, took the mule all the way down to Panama City on the Pacific side, got another Pacific Coast, Pacific Mail steamship company up to San Francisco, which is what Levi did. So he crossed the isthmus. He turned 24 years old, 24, on the trip up. I think he had just passed Acapulco, on his way to San Francisco. And he landed here on March 14th, 1853. So he's a very serious young man. And again, records are scarce, but I am almost positive that he arrived in California with letters of introduction from merchants in New York that he could take up to the Gold Rush country to a store and say, the letter would say, I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Levi Strauss. He's new in business. Please give him your custom. Um, he'd probably also arranged to have a warehouse near the waterfront where he could store the, the dry goods that his brothers had already put on a clipper ship that was going around the horn. Um, and it's very likely he slept in that warehouse. I found a lot of um, letters and diaries 
and newspaper accounts of young uh, merchants sleeping in their warehouses um, on a mattress and blanket where the fleas don't let me sleep. We all know how flea in San Francisco was. So one of the very first customers that we know of that Levi found was uh, the store Hardy and Kennedy in Forest Hill, which is near Auburn. Um, and this is the, the sort of collection of, of dry goods that his uh, brothers would send him. Pants, shirts, boots, children's clothing, lace mantillas for ladies. Dry goods was basically anything that wasn't hardware or food. Um, it was sort of the, the soft goods of everyday living. And this is what he was bringing in, and he cultivated all these retail clients. And he started this sort of web beginning in California, which very, kept on going. When the Civil War came to California, um, Levi was, by the way, a Abraham Lincoln Republican. He voted for Lincoln in 1860 and 1864. He gave a lot of, he and the company gave a lot of money to the Sanitary Commission, which were those um, organizations that helped to create um, uh, better conditions in hospitals and, and battlefield uh, medical units to keep soldiers healthy during the, during the Civil War. Um, he joined something called the Committee of 34, which kept their eyes open, looking for any uh, treasonable combinations or conspiracies against the Union and the public peace. And there was a reason for that, because there were a lot of Southern sympathizers in California and San Francisco. It was a very real threat. Levi Strauss and Co., as well as many others, prospered during the Civil War because Eastern American uh, ports were blockaded. So California wheat and wool and dry goods were able to get to Great Britain and make a lot of money during the Civil War. So he did prosper, he did do well, and in the eight, late, or mid to late 1850s, his sister Fanny and her husband David Stern and their children moved from New York out to, Cal to San Francisco to live with Levi. So he's here for, alone for the first three years that he lived here. Um, it was on a battery between Pine and California, I believe. It's a beautiful, beautiful building. And they uh, had started off at just uh, 1416 Battery Street, and by the time of the earthquake, it was 10 to 24 Battery Street. They had like basically the entire block. So the company had been just Levi Strauss, but by the time of, uh, by about 1863, it was Levi Strauss and Co. The family was here. His sister Mary um, had passed away, and her husband was now out here as well with his children. So it was really becoming a family business. Now, it was easy to make money in um, San Francisco, but it was also easy to lose it. Um, what Levi regularly did was put gold called treasure, my favorite historical word, treasure, onto Pacific Mail steamships that went down to the, to the isthmus, were carted across the isthmus, put on another steamer to go up to New York, and that gold, he sent that gold to his brothers to go into the bank to buy more dry goods. Well, he had, the company had $76,000 in gold on the Central America, which is this boat, which went down in a hurricane off of South Carolina in September of 1857. That's about $2,000,000 of value today. Now, some people found that boat in the 1980s, but it's very likely the company did get an insurance payment. Um, they were very good about making sure that those, a lot of those shipments um, were insured. Levi had a, a pretty good sales force set up by the um, 1870s. And what's really interesting is that Levi had dry goods customers in Mexico, Canada, and Hawaii in the late 1860s and early 1870s. He really early understood the value of the Pacific Rim, which I find very fascinating. So he thinks, I'm going you know, to be a wholesaler for the rest of my life. I'm prosperous. You know, my, I, my family is growing. My sister and her husband are having more kids. The, the business is doing great. I'm a, I'm a happy capitalist. And that's what he thought he'd do for the rest of his life. 
until 1872, when he got a letter from Jacob Davis, who was born Jakob Yufis in Riga, which is now Latvia, which at the time was Russia, um, one of those four places that gets bopped all over the map throughout history, but it was Russia at the time. He came to the United States in 1854, worked um, in the East. He was trained as a tailor, as a teenager back in, in Latvia, Russia. Um, he came to California in late 1854, decided to try the whole gold mining thing, and it didn't really work. So he had changed his name to Davis by this time. So he was kind of went all over the place. And he was, let's see, by the mid-1860s, he was up in Canada. He got married, started to have a family, ran a brewery. But every time he sort of didn't make it very well, he would go back to tailoring. In 1867, he was in Virginia City, which is you know, one of the hubs of the Comstock you know, mining regions. And he described it as a populated of 15,000 people, of which 5,000 were miners, about 5,000 of bummers, gamblers, and prostitutes, and about 5,000 of businessmen, speculators, and capitalists. Then, in 1868, he moved to Reno, literally days after Reno had been officially established. Uh, was clustered, built up and clustered around the, the Central Pacific Railroad. Like, local businesses supported mining and agriculture, and he set up there as a tailor, um, and he by this time was making tent covers, horse blankets, and wagon covers. So, in December 1870, January 1871, a woman walks into his tailoring shop and says, my husband needs a new pair of pants, but they've all fallen apart. He literally can't even go out in public, so I'm here to ask you to make a pair of pants for my husband. So he sends the wife back to her husband with a string and says, please measure his waist. So she comes back and she says, would you please do something to make these pants not fall apart? My husband just goes through these pants like he just can't believe. So he was working with a fabric called duck. It's a kind of a linen canvas. It comes from the, um, the, the Dutch um, for canvas. And it's pretty sturdy stuff, a kind of an off-white. And then he had an, over on a table, he had some horse blankets. And he used to reinforce the seams and the, the stress points of horse blankets with rivets. And he looks over at this table and he thinks, huh, I wonder if I could put some rivets in these pants if they would hold together better. Hmm. So he did. You're hearing how innovation occurs and by whom in this great country, and from the oddest circumstances, and often just trying to solve a problem, are great business franchises born. My goodness, what a story we're hearing, the story of Levi Strauss. It's being told by Lynn Downey. And by the way, the book that she wrote, a beautiful and readable biography, is called Levi Strauss, The Man Who Gave Blue Jeans to the World. And you can get it at Amazon or all of the usual suspects. But imagine taking that trip to San Francisco. Look, folks, there weren't planes. The train didn't even get across the country. And he embarked on this pretty dangerous and not too cheap trip to find opportunity. So he comes to New York first to find opportunity and then out to the West Coast. Let's return to our storyteller, Lynn Downey. He put rivets in the pocket corners, the base of the button fly, held on the little strap in the back that they had before belt loops. Gives them to the woman. Um, he sees the guy walking around town wearing his pants, and the guy was really, really happy. And then people start hearing about these pants of Jacob Davis's, and they're coming into his, into his shop and asking to buy some more. So he realizes he's got a big sort of money-making idea on his hands. And he was a frustrated inventor, actually a partly successful inventor. He actually had a patent for a type of clothes press already. And he really, he always thought big, and he wanted to mass manufacture and mass market these pants. So 
a lot of the fabric he had in his tailoring shop he got from Levi Strauss and Co. So he knew the name Levi Strauss. He knew the reputation of Levi Strauss. So what does he do? He has this money-making idea. He sends examples of the pants down to Levi, Wells Fargo Express, and with a letter that says, here is a big money-making idea. Let's be partners and do this together. Well, you know, that shows a lot of trust, you have to admit. <laughs> I mean, what, what would have prevented Levi from running off with the idea? But of course, he knew Levi's reputation, and he knew he wouldn't do that. He also knew that even though Levi wasn't a manufacturer, he thought big. It was a big idea guy. And he would probably think this was a big idea, and he literally did. In the documents that are in, copies of which are in the National Archives in Philadelphia, there's this handwritten pencil note, note to lawyer, write to this guy. Sign him up like now. I mean, literally days after he wrote this letter in July, July of 1872. So the patent was awarded after three tries with the patent office on May 20th, 1873 for an improvement in fastening pocket openings, which is really boring language for basically the invention of the blue jean. So this is, it gets pretty exciting right off the bat. There's a magazine published out of San Francisco called Pacific Rural Press, very influential with ranchers, farmers, a lot of people who make farm machinery, whatever, the kind of people who would wear really tough, riveted pants. And they had a little article about the pants in one of their issues, and I want to read you a little bit of it. So they talk about, you know, this, this invention seems very simple, but it's really very effective, and we are sure it's going to become quite popular amongst our working men. Nothing looks more slouchy in a workman than to see his pockets ripped open and hanging down, and no other part of the clothing is so apt to be torn and ripped as the pockets. Besides its slouchy appearance, it is inconvenient and often results in the person losing things from his pockets. All right, seriously, I really don't think the guys were worried that their pants look slouchy, you know. But the, the point was there would be no more slouchy pockets because they had rivets, those pockets had rivets in them. So the first pants were made of denim. Basically, denim does, was created first in France, probably in the 17th century, and it was a serge fabric, a type of weave, from the town of Nîmes. And so it was serge de Nîmes. And so by the time English textile manufacturers were making it, they were calling it serge de Nîmes because even though you have an English fabric, if you give it a zippy French name, you know, it's really good marketing. But eventually they anglicized the word to denim. And then by the 18th century, when American textile mills started to make denim, it was always in English, denim. And it was always all cotton, even though in the, the very beginning it was actually a wool and silk blend. Um, George Washington toured a Massachusetts textile mill in 1789 and watched denim being made. So, you know, the, there, and there are still people who write and say that Levi got the, the denim from France for his first jeans, and they tend to tell those stories in France. It's like, no. First jean, the first jeans were made of denim, and the denim came from the Amiskag Manufacturing Company in Manchester, New Hampshire. It was the biggest textile mill in the country, and they did make the very best denim in the United States. There were no denim mills or textile mills in California. Levi did have to go all the way to Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, there was a fabric called jean, J-E-A-N, which was being made at the same time as denim. And it tended to be indigo blue, just like denim was. Um, it, it, was a, uh, it was easily absorbed by the cotton. Um, you know, it was a color that everybody liked, you know, whatever. Pants made of jean fabric were called jeans. And actually, Kentucky jeans was a very specific type of pant. 
um, and it originally was made in Kentucky, but again, it was one of those things, everybody knew what Kentucky jeans were, and they were made in other places, but not necessarily always in Kentucky, but it was made of jean fabric. Denim is one colored thread and one white thread together. Jean fabric was two threads of the same color. So it looked like denim, but it didn't have, you know, denim will have that white that kind of will kind of, you know, the, the, the fill will come through a little bit. Jean fabric was just, you know, blue. So jeans, I mean, Levi Strauss sold jeans pants in his dry goods inventory before the jeans were invented. Here's why we call them jeans today. So men had worn unriveted denim pants for a long time, and they were just called, you know, denim overalls. When Levi Strauss and Jacob Davis put rivets in those for the first time, it created a new category of workwear, which is the blue jean. But they were called overalls until about the 1950s. And then teenage boys who saw Marlon Brando wear 501 jeans in movies, it was you know scary motorcycle guy, they wanted to be like him and they wanted to wear those pants. But their dads called them overalls, so they started calling them jeans. They didn't want to wear overalls like their dad. It had to be jeans, cool jeans, pants like Marlon Brando did. I don't even really know why they appropriated that word, but it was the new word. You know, it was, it was just a new word for the pants that were already there. And it was a, a new modern word for something that had been around since the 1870s. Uh, the changes in the jeans went over time and usually were because of changes in fashion and wanting to modernize you know, what the jeans were. So um, the, the rivets on the back pockets were always on the outside, but then in the 1920s and 30s, the company was getting complaints saying, your rivets are scratching our saddles and our, our school decks and our car hoods, which I don't know about that. Um, and so what the company did was put the rivets in the pockets, but then sew the pockets over. So the rivets were there, but then they, you know, they wouldn't scratch. But they were eventually taken out completely in, I think, 1967. There was a rivet at the base of the button fly, the indelicately named crotch rivet. And there was all this anecdotal evidence. You know, people were writing in, you know, when we crouch in front of a campfire, um, this rivet heats up in a really delicate place. And the company is like, what a bunch of wimpy cowboys. Um, and then it happened to the president of the company, uh, Mr. Walter Haas. Um, and, but about that time, uh, it was uh, World War II had started. And American clothing manufacturers had to take a certain amount of metal off of their clothing. And so I'm sure there was a meeting at the company. It's like, OK, nobody likes this rivet. We have to get rid of some rivets. It's going. So. They had, you know, they had to find a place to, to set up shop. The company didn't, have, didn't own any manufacturing space until the 1880s. So this is 1873. So they leased, some, leased a space on Market Street, and they had to advertise for women to sew the pants. And so here's a typical ad. This was uh, in the San Francisco Chronicle, I believe, in July of 1873. Wanted, 50 first-class female sewing machine operators who can bring their own machines with them. Either Singer's number two or Grover and Baker's number one for sewing heavy work. Steady and remunerative employment at 415 Market Street upstairs. All right. I read this and I thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I've got this image of these poor women, you know, dragging these machines up Market Street. Um, but they really were very small and very portable at this time. And it was actually apparently not that unusual for the women to take them around with them. But eventually the company did get some sewing machines so the women didn't have to bring their own. So 
Levi had brought Jacob Davis from Reno to be in charge of the manufacturing, and Levi stayed with the dry goods. That's what he knew. That was his business. Um, so Jacob was in charge. Jacob and his family lived on Folsom Street, um, fairly near to the, to the lease and the new factories. And he became a Levi Strauss and Company employee. And you're listening to Lynn Downey, and she's the author of Levi Strauss, The Man Who Gave Blue Jeans to the World. And again, get it at Amazon or all the usual suspects. And my goodness, the understatement of the century it was what the founders thought about this, about this new invention, these, these jeans with rivets in them. We are sure it's going to be quite popular with working men. The understatement of the century in fashion. And my goodness, what a story of innovation, of opportunism, and in the end, of pure flexibility and seeing something new and going for it. And thank goodness Levi Strauss had these manufacturing plants in places like New Hampshire that could actually help them get the fabric. Uh, And you see the interconnectedness of the free enterprise system and how it benefits all inventors, all entrepreneurs, in the end, the country itself. Let's conclude with the final chapter of this story. Here again is Lynn Downey. These pants were called overalls because in the old days, that's what working pants were called. If you wanted like bib overalls, um, you had to ask for those specifically, either engineer overalls, bib overalls. But if you asked for waist overalls or just overalls, you got what we today call blue jeans. And they were, this was workwear. This was pure workwear. The denim, this 19th century denim was really, really tough. They wear like iron was an early advertising slogan. And it's very, very true. So among the early consumers um, were, of course, cowboys. um, And that stayed as a classic consumer for a very, very long time. Miners, of course, and agricultural workers. But there was one person one very important person who never wore a pair of jeans in his life, and that was Levi Strauss. It would be completely inappropriate for him to wear jeans. He was not a laborer. He was a wealthy businessman. He was a capitalist. He wore a black broadcloth suit, a silk tie, and carried a top hat. (laughs) So manufacturing is going on, and the company was making a lot of flyers um, for the salespeople to give to potential retail clients. And a lot of them were saying something called home industry. And this was 19th century code for the fact that they only hired white women and girls in the factory. And this is one of the pieces of Levi history that is classic and standard for San Francisco history that I have the blessing of Bob Haas and the entire Haas family to talk about because that's how they told me to write this book, which is that Levi Strauss did not hire Chinese in his factory because the discrimination in San Francisco was about the Chinese. Um, The railroad had been completed in 1869. There were no more jobs. White men, Chinese men, were coming into San Francisco to look for jobs. There was a lot of hateful rhetoric and violence, and people didn't want their clothes made by filthy Chinese who lived in that strange place called Chinatown and ate strange food. And some of it ended up on Levi Strauss and Company advertising. This is a price list that would have gone to a retail store, said manufactured by white labor. And there's quite a few of those. For a while, it was even stamped on the inside of the pocket bag of the jeans. It was a selling point. It was a point of pride for the company. I don't know how Levi Strauss personally felt about the Chinese, but as a businessman, he knew that there was no way that he could sell his product and keep his business unless he adhered to the prevailing prejudice. We don't like it. It's ugly. It's icky, but it's real. And that is who he was. That's one of the 
one of the reasons that, and I'll talk about this later, that I, I find him so fascinated is because he's not predictable and he's complicated. And maybe at times he might, might not have been very easy to like. But that's why, that's why he was so interesting to me. Um, about a year after Levi arrived in San Francisco, he made his first charitable contribution. It was $5 to the San Francisco Orphan Asylum Society, which today, by the way, is the Edgewood Center for Children and Families that's still out in the Sunset District, still in business. Um, and he, that was the beginning of a lifelong process of philanthropy that was personally important to him, but also very much a tenet of his Jewish faith. Um, we know it's, it's really easy to track his, his giving because a lot of it showed up in the newspapers. And I can, there, there are personal donations that he made and corporate donations. And when you see, when I evaluated all, where all his money went, you can see what went most to him personally. A lot of his money went to take care of young people and to educate young people. So he's becoming this amazing philanthropist, and but the business is, you know, keeps on going. And he and a lot of his other managers know that when you have a patent on something, so they had an actual patent on the process of making riveted clothing. You don't get to keep that forever. It's not like a trademark. Eventually, inventions have to benefit the public domain. So they knew in 1892, that patent was going to run out, and anybody who wanted to could start making riveted clothing. Oh, my God. So what the, as we get closer and closer to the 1890s, the company started basically branding the product. In 1886, the famous two-horse pole, we don't know if it was ever real, we don't know, um, people have tried, um, first went on the pants, was put on the patch on the pants, and also used in print, on flyers, on invoices, everywhere, blanketed everything with this logo. And it was partly branding, but I have a feeling there was another reason for this. So not everybody in the American West was literate, and not everybody in the American West spoke English as their first language. And if you go in a store and there's some competitor's you know, product there and you don't speak English or you don't read, you can say, oh, I want the one with the two horses. You, know, you can point to the picture of the brand that you want. It was very, very smart marketing and I think probably fairly common. Um, but that, and the, the product was called the two horse brand until 1927 when the company had to register the name Levi's as a trademark because Levi's was becoming a generic like Kleenex. Um, but forever it was the two horse brand. So in about 1890, the company started to assign three-digit lot numbers to all of its products. And that's when we first see, it's 1890 or 1892, this famous 501. And here's where we have one of those, you know, I need to drink my dinner at night kind of days when people would tell me, oh, I know where the number 501 came from. No, you don't. Nobody knows. There was newspaper advertising and funky, you know, the Bodie Courier and funky newspapers all over the West. Really interesting um, visual, you know, display ads as well with um, a strong and durable, you know, great language. And this goes along with, with other stories that I found and letters that people had, um, had written to the company, um, all, you know, early in the century, that his employees called him Levi. He wasn't Mr. Strauss. Even, and his customers, you know, called him Levi. He, he did not have this, you know, this barrier between himself and the men who wore, you know, jeans or, or people that were, you know, his customers. He really appeared to be a truly personable and apparently a guy with a great sense of humor. Levi never married. 
he moved in with his sister Fanny and her family when he was in his early 40s, and then she passed away, and then he, he lived with his oldest nephew, who was Jacob Stern, and it was Jacob Stern's house where he was living when he passed away, and that was the house that went down in 1906. He died on September 26, 1902. He was 73 years old. Um, he had not even really been ill. He maybe hadn't felt so good for a couple of days, and went to bed after dinner, and went to sleep and never woke up. Um, the funeral was held out of his home. Jacob Vorsanger, the rabbi of Temple Emmanuel, gave the eulogy. They had a special train to go down to Home of Peace in Colma. They closed the business for the day so all the employees could come to the funeral. You know, people always say nice things about people at your funeral, right? But I have a feeling that every wonderful thing that was said about Levi was true. And everything seemed so very, very sincere. And then there were so many obituaries and articles about him in newspapers after his death that just seemed to echo everything that the rabbi had said that makes me really feel that it was very, very true. So the earthquake and fire happens. Um, the building goes down. And he had left the business to his four nephews. He had four nephews and three nieces. In his will, he left the business, which is the majority of his business, to the nephews. He left lots of money to orphanages, mostly orphanages, and what were called the benevolent associations. These were organizations mostly for the Jewish indigent widows and orphans, people who weren't able to take care of themselves. There was the Eureka Benevolent Society, the first Hebrew Benevolent Society. He left a lot of money to them. And then he left each of his nieces $25,000, not to their husbands to administer for them, but directly to his nieces, and then the bulk of the business to his four nephews. His estate, by the way, was valued at $6 million, and that's $6 million So the four nephews didn't have to work. They were incredibly wealthy. They had real estate. They could have just skated on their money the rest of their lives, but they didn't do that. They rebuilt the company. They rebuilt the building on the very same place. It was uh, 98 Battery. This building is still there. It's at the corner of Pine. And the company was there from 1908 until the 1970s when they went to uh, Embarcadero Center. So the Stern brothers also kept the company name. They could have started over. They could have said, oh, now we're Stern brothers. No, it was Levi Strauss and Co. again. So the, the, family, to, the family that owns the company today is the Haas family. So... Um, Levi, one of Levi Strauss's nephews was Sigmund Stern. You've all heard of Sigmund Stern Grove. Well, that was Levi's nephew, Sigmund. Um, and he and his wife had a daughter named Elise. And Elise Stern married Mr. Walter Haas Sr., the gentleman in this photo. And it's his descendants that own the company today. Um, his grandson, Bob Haas, is the man who hired me for my job as historian. And he is the reason I call Levi Uncle Levi because he is the great-great-grand-nephew of Levi Strauss himself. And it is the Haas family that, of course, still owns um, the company. Now, Jacob Davis sold his interest in the patent back to the company about 1906, and then he died in 1908. His son, Simon, worked for Levi's for about 20 years, and then he left and started his own clothing business, which didn't really do very well. Then in 1935, he opened another business, which he named after his son, and that is still in business today, which is Ben Davis. The work clothing company, the little, with the little gorilla on the label, Ben Davis was Jacob Davis's grandson, and they're still in business today. And you've been listening to Lynn Downey telling the story of Levi Strauss. Her biography, Levi Strauss, the man who gave blue jeans to the world, is available on Amazon.com and the usual suspects. His employees called him Levi, so did his customers. He was a generous man, and from the storytelling, a complicated man. 
and a human being in the end. Even our heroes are humans. And he died in 1902 at the age of 76, never married, left lots of money to orphanages, as was dictated by his Jewish faith, the idea of giving back tzedakah, uh, the equivalent of tithing for Christians. And he left his nieces money, his nephews the business. And the rest is history. The Levi Strauss story, an American dreamer story like none we've ever told as good as ever we have told here on Our American Stories.